Hey everybody, what's up? Uh, this is Jeremy D. Johnson. Uh, if you already connected with me online, you know who I am, but um, this is a weekly live stream for the Mutations podcast. A couple of things coming down the pipe just to, to mention at the outset here. Um, a few things. Uh, next Tuesday, we're doing an event, which is going to be a Zoom open registration event for um, Brent Stickley and Barbara Carlson in conversation with myself. Uh, it's happening, I think, in the morning on the Pacific Coast and about 2 o'clock, 2.30 here on the East Coast. It's called the A Perspectival Body, and we're going to be exploring integral themes, integral consciousness between uh, Chinese medicine, embodiment practices, and general integral themes, general integral dialogue. I've had both Barbara and Brent on the uh, Cohering the Radical Present uh, online course. And I think it's gone over really well. Our discussions have been very generative and fruitful. And what I'd love to do is just sort of begin to share that a little bit more um, out in the open, not only with the Patreon community, but also just with the general community. It's a very interesting conversation. So definitely register for that, tune in with us and check out um, my Twitter, et cetera, where I'm promoting that just where you can get the, the registration link. Uh, a couple of other things, the Mutations podcast link is in the show notes here along with the Patreon community. So if you're interested in supporting and jumping on the, the Patreon calls, um, which we also host on Wednesdays, and actually I did that before I jumped on here. That's where you would go do that. Um, you can also connect with my newsletter if you wanna keep up to date with new writing and new events and new discussions, and my Twitter and my book. So that's all on that's all on the show notes. But for today, um, there's a lot. there's been a lot of discussions and, and uh, conversations I've been having uh, most recently with uh, Michelle Bowens, for instance, talking about peer-to-peer -peer theory and integral theory and how they might connect or how they sort of, sort of uh, synergize with each other. And actually, it was after the, the STOA session on Monday with uh, Noam Chomsky. Uh, Peter Lindbergh had Noam Chomsky on the STOA, a fantastic event. Uh, I think it went over really well. There were some really great questions. And uh, I had the honor of being invited to ask Noam Chomsky a question, uh, and I tried to make it a, a comprehensive one as possible without being overloaded. And essentially, I was asking him, since it was uh, about the role of the public intellectual, what the role of the public intellectual is in shaping uh, or helping to shape social consensus in the context of a hyperpolarized environment, um, especially on the, in the media, or highly polarized right now. So. What is the role of the intellectual in doing that? The public intellectual, writers, thinkers, intellectual communities. And then also the follow-up question to that was, you know, an extended context of that inquiry, which is what can the role of the public intellectual be in the context of working together internationally to solve these larger and looming systemic crises and transformations that are taking place right now in terms of the climate crisis, which poses an existential threat to our species and to the rest of the biosphere. In terms of the crisis of late capitalism, how do we systemically and structurally transition into a different economy, right, a different culture? This requires an international consciousness of some sorts. But in the context of the Trump years, in the context of anti-globalization movements, going planetary doesn't have a very positive connotation right now. 
So the question, the, the follow-up was sort of how do we navigate that and, and how might we address that as a kind of mediational bridge to put forward uh, a more constructive uh, consensus around what it means to go global without necessarily losing the traditional, without losing the local, et cetera. And some of you may already be thinking what I'm thinking in terms of where this question is headed, right? Because this is really the, the, the topic of conversation for uh, Michelle Bowens and the Peer-to-Peer -peer Foundation, the Peer-to-Peer -peer community, and what they call, Jose Ramos calls a, a, um, cosmo-localism. And also a lot of the questions about, you know, retrieving the commons, retrieving human-centric and commons-centric socioeconomic and cultural values at the center of our, um, of our civilization. Is this even possible right now? Uh, because it seems, at least if we look at their, their work, it seems like they are, you know, in terms of the, the context here, the, the future or the necessity. Um, and yes, yes, uh, just, just for those who are listening, I'm going to be taking questions as we go along. So if you do have a question for me, if you do have a comment, please do feel welcome to share. Like Chris is, is asking about uh, the Chomsky session. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the question I posed to Chomsky that, you know, I thought he had a, a nuanced answer. It wasn't a closed, an uh, closed answer, but more of an open-ended agreement that this is, you know, where we need to be leaning into. And, and he offered a few different strategies. But for me, it's how do we, the central question is how do we develop a internationalism that is not uh, uh, the coastal elite, right? It's not uh, the globalization agenda in terms of the extraction of wealth and resources, et cetera, that a lot of relocalization efforts, both positive or um, in terms of constructive and then also uh, mixed with the more xenophobic and hyper-nationalist uh, movements, a lot of people are, are a lot of communities are withdrawing from the global, right? Because of this crisis. So my question is, well, how do we navigate that? Because we do need to be global. We do need to be planetary in our in our extent and scope of addressing the climate crisis and addressing addressing the climate of uh, sorry crisis of late capitalism. So Chomsky offered a, a couple of different answers with that. Um, but he did say it was the the question, right? When it comes to like capitalism, when it comes to uh, the crisis of the biosphere and the climate, when it comes to the nuclear crisis, which which Chomsky is one of the few folks who keep emphasizing that is still being a you know a, a, an international issue, an international crisis of potential potential existential uh, extent. So a lot of the answers tended to be implicitly mediational. And maybe I can get into this too. This is something we talked about during uh, the Patreon live stream a little bit earlier today. Um, this is something, that, and this is also how I kind of phrased it uh, to Chomsky as well, in terms of my first first aspect of my question, which is, you know, how can the progressive communities, the economic left, the progressive left, etc., how can they? Or how do they, or how ought to they, how ought they see themselves in a mediational role in terms of addressing issues of uh, these more reactionary um, uh, uh, communities that wish to retreat from the global or wish to retreat from 
the cosmopolitan, et cetera. What can the progressive left do to really be a mediational force, particularly in the context of the climate crisis when we need everybody on board, right? Um, and Chomsky's answers tended to be very socioeconomic in the sense of, well, address them in material concerns and material matters. And, uh, you know, by extension of that answer, I think we've seen how that has been successful with a lot of the down ballot in terms of progressives pushing for particular substantive policies in terms of um, you know, the people... Uh, overwhelmingly support some kind of healthcare reform, right? Uh, Florida, my own state, ended up voting for $15 an hour, and yet they also voted for Trump. So there's a, there's a, there's a desire to have material concerns addressed. So when it comes to, as Chomsky mentions, um, addressing the deindustrialized Midwest, um, perhaps the best answer would be to emphasize um, you know, reindustrializing or new jobs or revitalization of the economy, et cetera. And being good at, you know, playing a sort of mediational role. Okay. If, if cultural progressive values and rhetoric aren't going to work in uh, particular areas and demographics that tend to be more conservative or libertarian, then maybe addressing things like, okay, well, minimum wage should be higher. Or, well, we want to build, I'm going to start up in a new industry in this, in this area, right? We want to give people jobs, right? We want to reinvigorate the economy here. So a lot of that emphasis is really the way in which something like a Green New Deal that Chomsky was arguing for could be used to leverage different cultural value spheres and therefore function as a kind of mimetic mediation, right? And this is what I've been saying, you know, with with, uh, with my friends in the Growing Down podcast, uh, uh, especially Ryan and I talk about this a bit, that economic populism when it is substantively backed up, can be an effective mediational bridge. And really, that's where we should be leaning. Um, if, we if we remain aloof from the material conditions and concerns of people who have very wildly different um, cultural values, then it becomes much more difficult than actually it might be at its root or at its source is, okay, let's address the material conditions of the working class, of the deindustrialized Midwest, and alleviate some of the conditions and pressures that exacerbate xenophobia, exacerbate particular, particular charismatic populist movements that are dangerous and, and, and uh, right-leaning. Um, doesn't necessarily solve those things. And that, that is where I think the more rarefied kind of cultural mimetic work about talking about, you know, where someone's center of gravity is, et cetera. Uh, that is where perhaps that can, can come into play. But I think when we're talking about more universal oriented bridges, I think it has to do with the material concerns and actually winning over the hearts and minds of folks about those material concerns and delivering and delivering because if you don't deliver, then it's just rhetoric. And I think for a lot of folks in, in the United States, the Democratic Party has really spoken mostly to rhetoric and not to substantive policy or life changing conditions, right, in terms of voting people in. So that, that was a really good answer on Chomsky's part. And I don't think it's necessarily fully addressed either, because that, that is one tactic, that's one strategy. But, you know, as I've been saying, I think there's a difference between globalization, the process of um, you know, growing markets that are increasingly international, increasingly extractive, uh, increasingly outsourcing of jobs and labor to cheaper and cheaper spaces. Um, and what we would see, let's say, in planetization, 
which is is a vague. I mean, there it's a it's a metaphysical term, right? It's it's um it's a teleological term. So, but, but distancing ourselves from those for a moment, planetization, I would say, has more to do with well, how do we build a post-capitalist society and what are its qualities, right? Economically and socially, how does it organize itself? Um, and I think we have to look particularly to like what Michelle Bowens was talking about in terms of peer-to-peer -peer theory. Uh, and Bowens brought up a really good point in our conversation when he was talking about the necessity of, of giving post-capitalism its own center of gravity, like what is it? Okay, it's after capital capitalism, right? Post-capitalist, but what does that actually mean? What positive and expressive qualities does it have? I think we need that to, in order to lean into, you know, um, in order for post-capitalism to have a center of gravity, to have an attractor, to have a kind of organizing principle, we need to attribute qualities to it. So for for Bowens, I think, and a lot of the peer-to-peer -peer folks, the 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 attractor is the revitalization and the recentering of the commons at the center of of life and the center of our economics and our and our and our culture, um, particularly as, as he put it, um, uh, and this this is uh, their accounting for planetary survival essay. It's a it's a co-written co-authored essay uh, that they put out or the yearly periodicals. Uh, we also claim that the emerging world system would be common centric, and that the existing state and capitalist market forms would be transformed under the new dominant logic of the commons. What we saw emerging was a new mode of production and exchange where communities create shared value through open contributory systems, govern their, their common work through participatory practices, and create shared resources that can, in turn, be used in new iterations. This cycle of open input, participatory process, and commons-oriented output is a cycle of accumulation of commons as opposed to the accumulation of capital. I find that to be very fascinating, and I'm not necessarily an economist myself, but I think this as, as a theme that I see emerging on the progressive uh, left, for instance, or as I see in terms of the context of, uh, you know, what Richard Wolff is talking about and a lot of the folks on the left talking about, I shared this earlier today from Kim Stanley, Stanley Robinson, the democratization of work. Um, this, this is a kind of mimetic value that I think is really beginning to take hold. And um, what peer-to-peer -peer is, is trying to do is to provide an exit strategy, right? It's not just there's a door, there's a door to somewhere, right? There is a particular logic in the emergent world order or um, restructuring of, of the, the dominant logic that we need to begin to articulate and be uh, more strong, strongly more ex expressive about it, right? And more articulate about it. Um, so that's what I'm very interested in right now. And I'm really interested in jumping down that particular rabbit hole of study and inquiry. Um, so, there's that. Let me just check our questions here because I know we're getting a couple. Yes. Um, uh, Armando saying uh, Chomsky calls himself a libertarian socialist. Choice of consumerism in the marketplace is a weak form of choice, not substantive freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something like uh, that that meme that's been going around with Stanley Robinson. Kim Stanley Robinson has uh, was, was quipping about, right? Like we have all of these. Uh, choices, right? Where we want to work, what particular job we want to have, or what field we want to get into, et cetera, et cetera. And yet when we move into the workplace, we move into a kind of quasi-feudal system, right? Economically, structurally. 
So how do we really restructure a substantive freedom, right? And I think that is the big question. Um, Chris is also mentioning, I think the left has to be open towards choice, especially to calm down uh, the dissent from the libertarians. Um, so yeah, I think I, there, there's interesting combinations there. I think Chomsky is offering one, one path. Um, and, and, you know, again, with the peer to peer in the commons, you can see that there is quite a lot of choice in the kind of open and participatory style of market that they're talking about. So again, I think there, there are some options here. Maybe, you know, what might assist the contemporary left would be leaning into some of these exit strategies that, that I keep mentioning. Um, because these exit strategies are starting to talk about those kinds of combinations, um, maybe not calling them explicitly libertarian socialist, um, as Chomsky might, but they are talking about sort of bridging these two areas of concern and not so much talking about, well, okay, we need, we need, uh, you know, we need the big state to solve this particular thing. They're much more about, I think, anyway, that most exciting developments are more about how to make things more open, more free, more participatory, right? And more democratic. Yeah, and uh, like Ryan is mentioning in, in the chat as well, um, the irony is that the new populist right in Jetty, Tucker Carlson, John Holly attack the libertarian right as tacitly supporting globalism. Yeah, yeah, and I. But the problem is, I think with the with the populist right is uh, the the for me anyway. I, I don't see there being any kind of substantive policy on the populist right. I see a lot of rhetoric. Um, but I don't know if there's really any substantive policy. I could be wrong, but I mean, I've seen that criticism lauded a lot at the right, the populist right and the new Trump right. Um, but I, I myself have not really seen evidence of, of actual substantive um, policies that would be necessarily populist or, or economically beneficial for their supporters. And Armando saying this as well, and this is where the, the, the convergence happens with Chomsky uh, I would not associate socialist internationalism with neoliberal globalism. Michael Brooks clarified the difference for sure, for sure. Um, exactly. Uh, and with that too, like socialist internationalism is 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 much more collaborative, collaborative oriented, and I think it's much more friendly to the commons. I mean, we're talking about post-capitalist exit strategies that are. Uh, confronting the climate crisis and attempting to, you know, so mutually support one another in the democratization of work and experiment with social and economic systems that move us beyond capitalism and prepare us for the Anthropocene. I mean, that's sort of the context in which I've seen a lot of that conversation, especially this year, uh, like at the internationalist, uh, what is it called? Internationalism or Extinction, which was a summit a few months ago that Chomsky participated in. So I think they have the right angle, actually. I, I don't think they're doing anything that's necessarily, you know, off the mark. Uh, we just need more of that. We need more organi organizing and infrastructure around that and maybe better me messaging. And Chris, um, yeah, Chris is mentioning, I, I, I don't see examples of this, but the peer-to-peer -peer model is being built for the populist right. I, uh, I, I'm not sure about that. 
I mean, it could be adopted. One of the things that I have found interesting is that folks who do lean more conservative in the integral and metamodern community, if you could believe, you know, in the metamodern, there are some conservative folks, but uh, particularly in the integral community, um, cosmolocalism and peer-to-peer -peer do seem attractive. And again, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I don't think they're being co-opted for the, for the populist right. I think they are an organizing principle that, you know, we're going to have to embrace no matter what end of the spectrum we're, we're on, right? In terms of where we're headed, the commons centric attractor. Uh, peer to peer model is giving people the ability to participate, which the populist right is saying that they are losing out to big uh, government or big tech. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's giving everyone, right? It's giving everyone the ability to participate. And I think to some degree that that de-incentive, and this is my take on, on that. I think with peer-to-peer -peer and common-centric initiatives, it it deflates the concerns about a big government or B, lack of their ability to participate in their own economic and material conditions and shaping them. I mean, if you if you're if you allow people to participate in the shaping of their material conditions and improve them in a meaningful way, then I think this sort of fear of big government and sort of flight to deregulation and the whole libertarian bent um, becomes a little bit less of a, this is just my take, but it becomes a little bit less of an attractor. Let's see. And let's, let's jump over to, uh, I think we're also on Facebook here, but uh, Facebook doesn't play nice with this stream yard. So I'll just pop in over there. Um, but I think this is the, the essential question, which is how do we navigate towards planetization in the context of globalization, globalist markets and neoliberal extractive capitalism? Um, a lot of reactions to that socioeconomic setup and principle, right? There's a lot of recoiling from that. So it's difficult to make a case for it. And again, I, I, what the context of the Chomsky conversation was, okay, well, what is the role of the intellectual in helping to kind of navigate that? Um, and to some degree, it's, 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 it's a matter of shifting the, shifting the conversation a little bit closer to what we're talking about here, which is, okay, who's, what is the real problem here? It's not being planetary per se, it's the way in which we've been organizing our society. Um, it's the extractive model, right? It is the job loss, et cetera. So I think that's sort of partly the role of the quote unquote intellectual in our time is to begin to navigate that carefully and change change the the argument here, right? To really kind of contest that going um, planetary is is somehow, you know, the same as going neoliberal globalist, you know. So, um, and again, we're seeing it, I mean, with the right right now, we're seeing this sort of you know, globalist agenda rhetoric, we're seeing QAnon, we're seeing the kind of quasi-religious movements. Um, I, I think a lot of these things have been exacerbated by a loss of third spaces in the commons and a loss of... Um, uh, genuinely participatory avenues, right, for people to change their life conditions. Yeah. 
peer-to-peer can be a uh, universal ground resonate with everyone. And that's great. Um, I, I think again, like like Chomsky was saying, like appeal to the material conditions in particular areas as a sort of mimetic mediation principle, not his words, but my own take on what he was saying. Um, then that also means uh, by extension, you know, we it's not merely like, do people have $15 minimum wage? Do they have access to healthcare? Obviously those things are of concern and are an avenue for this mediation, but extending that into the commons, like these are deeper sociocultural issues, right? The loss of the commons, the loss of lo uh, local currencies and markets and a participatory, um, a capacity to, to, to participatory, for participatory engagement in society and culture, right? Not just through institutionalization, not just through the, the avenue of voting necessarily. So it's, it's, a, it's an important turn, I think, the turning back towards the relocalization, back towards the commons, et cetera. And I've always, I've kind of shaped it this way in, in some of the conversations about planetization versus globalization. Globalization's a cul-de-sac. Like, I, I don't think this extractive economic model is going to lead into as some kind of next stage uh, beyond capitalism, uh, you know, the retrieval of the commons, rather it looks a lot more like a chaotic bifurcation, which is something that also came up today in, in our Patreon discussion of moving from one chaotic attractor into another, uh, to another, but there's a destabilization process and it's sort of discontinuous. Um, so I, I think that's also important to kind of help think about this, that, that globalization is discontinuous from planetization. And planetization is gonna have a whole new set of attractors, it's gonna have a whole new set of, um, lot, well, as, as Bowens and, and Ramos and everyone was talking about in that essay, a new logic, right? A new logic of the commons. So we need to look to places that are really beginning to articulate that and make room for it and lean into it. Yeah, yeah, Chris is saying that the right is complaining about the great reset without any substantive response. Yeah, for sure. And that's the, again, this is, this is the, this is why I'm leaning so much into the discussion around the commons and peer to peer and relocalization and bioregionalism and by extension, these, mo these modes and models of economy and culture seem to be effective in, at least in their seed form in addressing the planetary crisis that we're in with regards to the climate. So I think our job as, as integralists is to really lean into uh, giving that a language, giving that a name, and then also finding ways to articulate that aesthetically, uh, culturally, right? We, we want to allow this to become a kind of, uh, how to put it exactly, um, we want it to kind of catch fire in the social imaginary, right? And that is very difficult, but I think there's at least enough people, particularly after this year, um, who are really beginning to adapt these models and practice with them and experiment with them out of necessity sometimes. Like uh, one of the things I mentioned with Bowens was the, the, the food commons that have been popping up all over the planet. Uh, there was a particular study he shared that, um, that occurred in, in, in Portugal and um, I think these are really good examples of, of kind of the seed forms that, he, that they talk about in the essay. Um, 
and the same way thing with same thing with the birth of modernity and 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 modern capitalism we had a kind of seed form of that within the medieval societies that were um being played around with and experimented with before they really took took off and took hold and i think we can safely say that we can safely claim that that is occurring today um dylan was asking sorry i can't post your question on here because you're on facebook but can we use tech can we do it using technology and sacred economics? Um, there's a few things. I do think technology plays a role in, in this process. I think technology should not be seen as, as um, it's not merely a tool because it also shapes us. But also, we've been using it kind of with one hand tied behind her back in terms of the economic model is a little bit in, 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 it's an obvious tension with the technological environment that we're in. What I mean by that is, yes, I think peer to peer, for instance, uh, digital networks, the simultaneity of the internet, these are implicating us in a new ontology, a new relationship to time space. Um, and therefore, you know, there's a new world here. Like it's a very McLuhan statement I'm making, a media study statement, but I think it's true. So can the appropriate social imaginary use these tools such as technology to, to actualize this new world, right? This new distributed culture, this new common centric planetary culture. I think that's a very good line of inquiry. Um, and I do think technology does play a role as an extension of that. And as also, we always have to be aware that technology and any kind of communications medium is environmental. So it shapes us as we shape it. Um, but the forgotten medium of communication or the forgotten medium, I think, uh, in a lot of discussions around this is that technology embedded, even a, something like the internet, embedded in a mar uh, uh, an extractive capitalist market is going to have a shaping influence on that technology and on the people who use it. So the medium is the message, yes, but as long as we are still in, you know, um, uh, techno-capitalism, there will be limits to leaning into the technology. I think it will also really require uh, a, a, a cultural transformation. So that leads me to the other part of your question about sacred economics. Um, gift economies, uh, different forms of economy and, and value are certainly important. And I think when Bowens and Ramos are talking about common-centric uh, common uh, logic, I, I think they are also making room, or at least my interpretation of that, they're also making room for sacred economics. They're also making room for a human-centric orientation. And there's a particular line that I think speaks to this that's not in Eisenstein's work. It's actually in um, Byung Chul Han's work, The Scent of Time. And it's right at the end, actually, um, when he's talking about this, I mean, part of the part of the, the the shaping of our culture right now has been the narrowing down of the human life world to to the extent that we are here to 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 labor, right? Here to produce wealth. Um, and as he says, if all contemplative elements are driven out of life, right? Like the the qualitative, the invisible, the human centric, the intersubjective, right? 
it ends in a deadly hyperactivity. The human being suffocates among its own doings. What is necessary is a revitalization of the Vita contemplativa because it opens up spaces for breathing. What is necessary is a revitalization of the contemplativa. Uh, perhaps the mind itself owes its emergence to an excess of time, an otium, even to a slowness of breath, a reinterpretation of pneuma, which means breath as well as spirit is conceivable. Whoever runs out of breath is without spirit. The democratization of work, which is part of what we've been talking about, must be followed by a democratization of otium, of, of, of leisurely time, of open time, lest the former turn into the bondage of everyone. So I kind of see this as, as bringing into the center the measureless you know, if everything is seen in, as, as, as a means of extraction for increasing wealth, and obviously that is incompatible with a sacred gift economy. It's incompatible with the other dimensions of the human being, the other forms of time and space that the human bring, being brings forth and, and shapes the world with, with their technology, with their language, with their religious imagination. So obviously I think what comes along with post-capitalism is a new sense of time or many varying forms and senses of time and the sacred and many extensions of the commons, right? Um, not the market, but the commons being the center, not capital, but the commons. And we could extend the commons to be something more poetic and spiritual like Andreas Weber does. Um, I really like his, his book in, in Enlivenment when he talks about this. I don't know if I actually have it here or not. Yeah. But... Um, I think Andreas Weber talks about this a little bit as well in terms of how we might extend the definition of the commons into not, not only back into the human world, uh, but also the non-human world. And he calls it an ontology of the commons. And I, I was pretty touched by this. And he says, it is essential that we supplement the mainstream understanding of the Anthropocene from the standpoint of an ontology of the commons. Without this perspective to complete the picture, the Anthropocene, the novel epoch characterized by the supremacy of human beings, would neglect a fundamental element of reality. At present, I am concerned that the idea so pr predominant in the Anthropocene approach that we can reconcile humankind with the unconscious, organic, in itself and in others, human and not human, by subverting all this under the power of culture is just another attempt at domestication. And then he continues uh, a little bit later here, talking about extending the commons to a living cosmos. And he says, every process that exists is a way in which a relationship unfolds and conveys meaning, meaning that we, human, animal, plant, and other subjects experience through our emotions. For this reason, we must develop our understanding of a living cosmos, of its natural becoming, its social transformations, and the way in which it provides us our material needs. We can do this in a way that is not automatically reductionist, only by a means of a poetics. And I talk about this because it, it kind of reapproaches your question about sacred, right? The sacred and the spiritual, room for spirit and room for breathing at the center of a culture. Um, obviously, our culture doesn't have that. And so we are kind of trapped in what Byung Chul Han was talking about, a, a, a motoricity, um, a, a mindless activity that drives us towards you know, death 
Um, and I think we, we feel this right now with our time anxiety around the, the, the climate crisis. We don't feel like we can slow down and we feel like the apparatus and machinery of, of industrial capitalism is just going, going, going to the point where it has um, even colonized and extracted the commons in the human life world. So that is the, that is the kind of world that I think is going to be undone regardless of our positive and constructive outcome that world is, is, is coming to an end. How we might land out of this crisis, um, I think depends on us really leaning into these more constructive visions of a post-capitalist future that are common-centric and extend the definition of the commons into the non-human world. And by, by equally important, this democratization of the workforce is, is convergent with the democratization of time, the openness of time, different ways of being in the world that Gepser talks about. Um, let's see, the linear notion of progress, uh, Chris was saying, absolutely. Uh, I think that's the big driving thing that uh, Byung-Chul Han was talking about, that Gepser has talked about, um, the, the, um, the, fixated direction on the extraction of capital, the industrial direction, right, of uh, constantly innovating progress every year, we go faster and faster, uh, bigger population, etc. The that extractive principle, uh, and yeah, as Armando saying, exploitative, right, there's an exploitation, is is this kind of momentum we we don't seem like we're able to stop and what Gepser brings in i think is really important here is the way in which those forces if we don't address them with the appropriate sense making in terms of how do we what do we value um how do we organize time and space right what is our relationship with the world if we don't respond to them with an appropriate sense of time and space, an appropriate freedom of time, then we are helpless to really address it, right? If the only way we know how to go is to go forward or back, right? We're really trapped by this. The, he talks about this notion of um, ex manu, emancipation, uh, historically speaking, as a sort of synchronistic moment where the beginnings of the industrial revolution, the invention of the steam engine, um, you know, the, really the kind of the birth of, of modern capitalism as it was revving up was occurring right around the same time we had all of these social revolutions of, about emancipation, right? Of the French revolution. And what he says is, you know, these point to uh, liberating from the hand the machines of power, right? The machines of progress. It, we have lost control of it. It is now um, moved to such a degree of an intensity that the human being can no longer control it, but it is now moved by it. And I think for many in, in modernity, this feeling or the sense that history has been blowing us forward in this catastrophe, like Walter Benjamin talks about with, with uh, Paul Klee's um, Angel, it's the uh, new angel. It's this sense that, you know, the winds of progress are more like a storm and it is almost a force of nature that we cannot control. Now, Gepter points out that the crisis here is actually not that, you know, we can't control it or, you know, um, we can't master it as human beings. Gepster actually has a much more, um, uh, um, at least 
potentially constructive response and regenerative response, which is we we only feel this way because we're still approaching it with the same mentality that has that has engendered it and created it, right? The mental structure, the perspectival world, which is deeply attached to this sense of time, this sense of directivity, this sense of control, right? What created the machine world and the industrial revolution and what engendered the possibility of extractive capitalism. You know, there's a certain logic behind all of these things that came out from us, right? So for Gebser, he says, you know, you're not going to go out there and control it, but what you can do is overcome it in yourself and regain a new sense of time, a new relationship with the world. And it is in that, right, to to stand for otium, for a leisurely time, at least what um, Byung-Chul Han talks about through Heidegger, but I like Gebser's more of like time freedom because there's a more, more of a multidimensionality in that. This, only this intensification of consciousness and culture is able to, um, as he say, as he says, retract, right? Everything that our culture has sort of exfoliated and created, the technological world, industrial capitalism, et cetera. With that comes a new sense of time, a new sense, a new possibility with economics, um, a new relationality with the world, right? And a new desire to make and architect that world, um, which of course has this positive feedback effect and sort of setting the seeds for the new. So for Gebser, it has more to do the solution or the supersession of, of uh, our crisis has to do with an intensification of our own consciousness and a new sense of time. Um, yeah, thanks to Spook. Uh, th this is like the, the crux of it. I appreciate you uh, appreciating me being back on again. I, I, we did the Patreon call and, and now I'm back here for uh, round two with social media. Oh, and speaking of, getting through social media reality tunnels to shape the cultural imaginary is hard, but what about integral conversational spaces as a means to rebuild the town hall commons? Uh, decentralized but open conversational spaces. I mean, where non-intellectuals can speak, you say. Um, I mean, that would be great. I, I think it's important. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, part of this is also uh, an issue within the sense-making integral and metamodern community spaces. And that I really think they need to be better rooted in what's going on on the ground. And like, for instance, during the, um, during the, the, the Chomsky discussion, uh, I noticed, and this could be my own bias in what I was picking up, but in the Stoa community, there was an appreciation and enthusiasm that Chomsky was pointing uh, folks and their questions to history, going like, well, okay, that's a lot like the 1980s, or that's a lot like what happened in Latin America with um, you know, the Catholic martyrs and uh, et cetera. He would always point to a particular historical moment. And that seemed to be a kind of a novel thing for a lot of the folks. They had a lot of great ideas about mimetic mediation and cultural evolution, but they, my opinion or my critique is I think a lot of the integral and sense-making community is not actually rooted in material history. I don't mean reductive to material history. I just mean informed by material history, the history of politics, the history of economics, the life conditions of, uh, you know, outside of the United States. Um, from that perspective, if you bring in the cultural memetics, et cetera, 
when you're rooted in that, then I think you you are much better suited to be able to talk across these sort of you know intellectual and non non intellectual spaces, and then even point out like where a non intellectual space is doing it, and that was my my point. Sure, Chris, um, but that was my point about um, where non intellectuals can speak because Chomsky mentioned this like okay, how do we be mimetic mediators? He didn't need to know about mimetic mediation to simply understand that you address the material conditions of people and their life world, and you find that's how you find the bridge. So how do we talk to Trump voters? How do we talk to climate change deniers? How do we talk to um, you know, right-wing populists and nationalists that are more concerned about, you know, in, aliens coming in and stealing their jobs or whatever the rhetoric is, well, you address their material concerns and you find ways to deflate that in that way and, and, and in some ways kind of win them over and allow them to cooperate with you by putting something else forward rather than opposing them and saying, okay, you guys are deeply xenophobic and um, cruel and evil and you need to just become global like us. That, in, that directness, right? Talk about the mental consciousness that Gebser talks about, that directness doesn't always work. There's an indirect way to sometimes approach this. And this is what not everybody on the left, but at least the folks that I'm following, you know, from Ben Burgess to, um, to Megan Day to, uh, um, uh, I mean, a lot of the sort of economic oriented left of folks in Jacobin, um, you know, even they, you know, maybe don't need to always be putting forward you know, um, which I, I agree with them, uh, uh, talking about socialism, the S word, right, et cetera, communism. Uh, even they understand, though, that, okay, we don't need to do that. You just address where people are at. Minimum wage. Do you have health care? How's your, how's your boss treat, treating you? How are, the, how are the jobs in this community been over the past 15, 20 years? Don't talk about, you know, the big oppositional concepts and words. So Chomsky went direct to a mimetic mediation without being trained in any of this, right? And my point is that I think a lot of folks on the economic and progressive left are already doing this mimetic mediation or attempting to do it. And so in terms of like non-intellectual spaces, what I would say is like, Chris, um, there are so many organizations that are working on this, uh, that are doing this in contested states where they could go blue and they could go red. Um, that are helping to rebuild the labor movement. There's particular um, organizations that you can support, et cetera. And you can, that is doing the same kind of thing, right? Um, it may be not doing it at a high level of like talking about cultural evolution and chaotic bifurcations or the content of our conversation, but they're still doing something that is thematically in line with this move into the integral world or the aperspectival world, which is, um, moving away from abstraction, moving away from, you know, this this onward and upward extractive economic model or this onward and up, upward sort of extractive intellectual model where we go higher and higher into levels of, of, of cerebralization. Uh, I think the, the answer is really to kind of fold all that back into embodiment. And that's also what like uh, Amber Frost uh, talked about in her essay on uh, the poison chalice of, of hashtag activism, which is, is a little bit of a bitter 
uh, essay talking about internet activism and how there's so much heat, but not a lot of light in terms of all of these Twitter wars, et cetera. Um, but her point towards the middle of the essay is, you know, if there's any benefit to the online discourse in this heated political sphere, it is to get people back offline and organizing things on the ground. So what I talk about in my community is how, you know, speaking of technology, uh, part of this process of shifting back into embodiment, empowerment, restructuring the world materially with these integrally informed characteristics is catching where our technologies are still kind of doing that perspectival flight. And I think, especially with the internet, um, we have a kind of interim situation where the content is, you know, distributed. It's about networks. It's about kind of, you know, virtual realities and multiple perspectives and fluid identities and iconographic avatars. Lots of really cool archaic revival kind of stuff. Lots of distributive oriented um, communication structure, but it's also kind of nested or captured by an extractive economic model, which is not like that at all, first of all. And second of all, a kind of Cartesianism, right, where we're projecting onto the internet in this virtual space, uh, an image of the future and debating and arguing in that image. But are we actually doing this on the ground, right? Are we actually folding the structure of the internet and its implications, its potential into how we structure ourselves in society face-to-face, -face, right? At the human level. The internet is a good prefigurative image of a, a different kind of society, a different type of culture, a different sort of economics. But as long as it's reifying that subtle Cartesianism where we're kind of hashtag activists, but we're not really like, okay, well, how do we actually reshape power materially? Then it's, it's again, there is a sort of dissociation. So I think um, Amber Frost's point about that is really important, that there's a Cartesianism that is subtly implicit in our digital technology that we need to really address. And that also points us back to Gepser in terms of like our technology and our, and our, the things that we make are mirrors back for our own structure of consciousness. If we can tease apart where we're, apart where we're still reifying the perspectival in the mental world, then we might be able to disentangle ourselves from that. And in some ways, you know, uh, deflate or offset problems that would come later, right? That are going to be even worse and more exacerbated. So, and this, this year has been a good year to come to that realization since we've all gone online, right? And since there are, you know, wonderful ways of connecting on the internet, like I think my community and the STOA, um, and the integral community, so many of us are doing this primarily online. So it's not like there aren't tremendous potentials to really connect at the human level through the internet. It's just that there's also this baggage that's coming along with the previous cultural mentality that really needs to be extracted and really, you know, if we did that, and the internet might look like a very different place. Um, let's see, do you have any favorite examples of how futurist aesthetics, aesthetic techniques cultivate that new sense of temporality? You mentioned the simultaneity, simultaneity of new media, and I find it was a major theme for futurists. Yeah, I mean, I think the futurists are, are 
are, are good examples. A lot of uh, 20th century art. Um, this is something I think I mentioned to you before, Armando, but um, I, I've, I've talked about with Debashish Banerjee as well that, uh, you know, the, the time and the context in which Gapser was writing Ever Present Origin in the 1940s, uh, a kind of modernism, and I don't mean this in terms of modernity in the perspective of the world, but I mean like the artistic movements of modernism that were experimenting with time and space and architecture. Um, they still had, um, there was a different route modernity could have went with modernism. And that sort of imploded, I think, with the with the crisis and the trauma of, of uh, the two world wars after the second world war. And there was a sort of, um, uh, downward turn or more negative and deconstructive turn in the post-war intellectual climate. And that really kind of lost this, the spirituality that was possible, I think, in, in modernism. Uh, and this is, this is Debashish, what he was commenting on. So in some ways, Gebser is kind of, you know, at the threshold here of this sort of lost future, articulating it himself. Um, and so looking back to futurists are, uh, is a very good way, particularly futurists, uh, to really kind of get the sense of time intensification and time eruption. Um, in terms of the new temporality and aesthetic techniques, uh, this is this is difficult, you know. I think the we, we can go with like cliche and archetype like McLuhan talks about and say like, well, everybody is practicing the new form of time when they, you know, scrub a video back and forth and like jump ahead and jump backward. And the internet itself is this sort of new aesthetic of, of, of temporics that we're always playing with at just sort of this ambient background radiation level that's slowly shaping the way we think about things, you know? Um, so there's that, but besides like looking back at, let's say Picasso's work, um, I think there are particular techniques that we can do in imagining ourselves and visualizing ourselves as temporal beings that are very powerful. Um, there's some also really good spiritual work, let's say like Joanna Macy's doing in terms of like uh, imagining uh, entering into a kind of creative exercise with your, with your future descendants, like you as sort of a living, living ancestor and speaking to um, the generations of the future and listening to what they have to say to you, right? And then vice versa in terms of your ancestors. So I think there's different ways to approach seeing ourselves and subject, uh, developing a subjectivity of, of ourselves as t temporal beings um, that are really, really interesting. Um, another thing I would say is uh, in terms of like temporics, uh, seeing, well, and we just had a whole fantastic discussion with Brant Stickley on, uh, on Sunday about, um, this time being thing. Um, and he's kind of coming at this from Chinese medicine. So I would say there is, there is a, um, plethora of aesthetics and techniques. I think hyper object art is another good example. Um, and again, the ubiquity of remixing is another example, just in terms of playing with different aesthetic decades. I know Mark Fisher had like some critiques of that in terms of the nostalgia, not only for lost futures, but also like stasis of capitalist realism, which again speaks to this sort of arrest of, of, of the emergence and novelty of the future. But I think there's the flip side to that as well, which is we're, we're putting on, we're taking off different aesthetic decades in a sort of creative combinatorial way, which is anticipatory for this new sense of time. Um, 
uh, what what else what else um i'll have to i'll have to lean into that a little bit more maybe maybe in a in a thorough conversation um but even in the theoretical work i think you know Nora Bateson's warm data is is great. Her writing on this is is fantastic in terms of um, leaning into temporics, qualific like uh, you're mentioning objectification, deobjectification, um, processual thinking, you know, qualitative thinking in terms of warm data systems and and uh, the warm data labs. I think these are very much leaning into this new forms this new form of temporics. So I think it's everywhere. Um, I couldn't say there's something more specific like the futurists in our time, which is frustrating, but maybe that'll change. Let's see. Let's see if there's any other questions here. Yeah, Tom, I have I got a I got the little whiteboard actually. Uh, the new one came. I don't think I have um, anything to draw yet, but. I will at some point. Uh, I finally got I finally got a whiteboard. Um, Brant, Brant um, just like blew us away with his usage of the whiteboard on on Sunday um, and inspired a whole bunch of us to grab one, including Barbara. Yeah, futurist imaginatives, Tom. Um, yeah, I think. But we, uh, um, Armando's question is is sort of along the lines of um, the futurists as a particular artistic movement. Um, but when I'm, when I'm talking about in my book with like fragments of an integral future or integral futurism, um, it's, it's playing with that a little bit more like along the lines of like Franco Bifo Berardi, um, futurability, right? Playing more along the lines of um, again, Mark Fisher terms of canceled futures and leaning into um, uh, exit strategies for post-capitalism. So yes, and I, I would throw in a couple other things for, for Armando too. I think um, it's a great book. I mean, it's more of a literary book, but I think we need those too. We need, we need novels. We need works of literature that really infuse us with a new sense of time. Um, and I hope we get more of it, but it's called a, a tale for time being. I'll see if I can post it in the get a link for you. Um, by Ruth uh, Ozeki. And that's also kind of a play, a playing with time. And if you guys have examples too of like specific kind of books that are angling at this developing a temporal subjectivity, that would be great. Um, it's also in what we were talking about earlier in terms of these new experimental economic models, um, getting a sense of the cycle, right? As um, when I was talking about in the, in the essay, the uh, accounting for planetary uh, survival essay by the peer to peer foundation, that kind of cycle of open contributory systems, um, contributory uh, participatory practices goes through the cycle, right? Commons oriented output, and the accumulation of the commons rather than the accumulation of capital. This is a sense of time, which is freed up from the extraction of labor, right? Which is a very one directional thing. It's more of a cyclical thing. Um, I think generally as well, like as Gebser talks about, uh, familiarizing ourselves with the, the, the 
multifaceted ontologies, the different structures of consciousness. Uh, he talks about the magic, the mythic, the mental, and just noticing them in the day to day, really developing them in our own subjective experiences, uh, playing with them, um, concretizing them, and switching on and off. I, I mean, as a as a human individual practice, that's so important. Um, it's not easy. I think we are we are kind of again dominated by this one directional sense of time and it's difficult to create these via contemplativa oriented practices of intentionality and orthogonal time as it were from our dominant mode uh but i think as a practice is quite radical right as a, as a practice it, it has profoundly powerful implications um and I have to bring it up again here too, in terms of um, in terms of uh, Gepster's comment, where he become he comes closest to um, uh, a, a conversation on labor and economics. Um, he, he mentions Marxism like kind of like passively. Uh, he doesn't really kind of lean into necessarily like 1940s Marxist literature or anything like that. Um, I think he he gives it enough credit. But it's really where I think he actually gets into it in a way I don't think he recognized uh, is towards the end of Ever Present Origin and his discussion on daily life, um, where he actually talks about this. He actually talks about this move away from via activa and moving into via contemplativa that uh, that uh, Byung Chul Han discusses. Um, let's see if I can find it for you guys. It'd be good to have on the podcast as well. So for anybody listening, yeah. So first of all, like the daily rhythmicity of, uh, that he's talking about and noticing the structures of consciousness in our daily life, right? Um, as he says, what does this all have to do with daily life? Something decisive, since what is emerging in the greater context must be concurrently co-prepared in the lesser. This does not mean that it is the number of those who realize and live the new that is decisive. Decisive is the intensity with which the individuals live the new. Anyone with a sense of detachment from himself also gains a detachment from the world. And he means this in a sense of um, the closest I can find in terms of another word you might use there from detachment would be uh, uh, equanimity. And we could even get this on the screen actually. We're, we're streaming for those of you who are watching this live. Um, I'm going to just share this for folks. Uh, application window. Here we go. Because I've got the Kindle. Uh, by the way, Everpresent Origin is on the Kindle, which is which is nice. That's that's a new thing. Um, so we're talking about detachment. He's talking about sort of an equanimity of the structures with, living within us, right? Concretizing them, exploring them with a sense of... Um, detachment from them. So you're not getting over involved necessarily in them. Um, hold on a second. Let me plug this in. So, and then he continues, uh, everyone has 
the means today to achieve self-transparency and to give an account of the conditions, temporal limits, and the limitations of his feelings, thought, and actions. Everyone today can become aware of the various temporal forms which all point to origin, and everyone can experience timelessness in the union of conjugal love, the timelessness of nightly deep sleep, the experience of rhythmic complementarity and natural temporicity which unites him in every heartbeat and rhythmic breath with the courses of the universe and everyone can employ measured time. The magic, mythical, and mental structures may, in other words, become transparent, particularly in their ever-valid effectualities as our co-constituents. And someone mentioned uh, Tyson Yunka Porta. Um, I, I'd like to have a conversation with him soon. I need to finish reading his book, um, giving indigenous representation, but with wisdom and not just aesthetics. Yeah, that's also important. Um, and, and part of what I think this integral oriented approach does, at least in the conversations I've been having with my friends and colleagues, um, let's see if I can get this on here. Yeah. Is this sense that to concretize these other structures, he's talking about different time forms. He's talking about magic and mythic. Um, there are co-valid expressions of the human life world, right? They're, they're the, we have that within us. We have the ability to learn in that way and to recuperate it and remediate it, right? This sort of, um, the movement in the humanities, like a particular intellectual um, constellation of thinkers I really appreciate are the post-humanists. And they're talking a lot about this and there's sort of a science fiction edge to it, but there's also a sort of um, indigenous retrieval and remediation in this, in this, and that we're moving away from our kind of um, uh, Eurocentric, Western ontology and opening back up to indigenous wisdom. Um, so this is part of that process, I think, of reclaiming time that I'm hopefully going to be talking about in my next uh, book in the coming months. And and look for that in I think probably March 2021. Um, but continuing this this reading here with that context layered in. This is a beginning, if only because the individual learns to see himself as a whole as the interrelationship and interplay of magic unity, mythical complementarity, mental conceptuality, and purposefulness. Only as a whole is man in a position to perceive the whole. And here's where, here's where we get into labor and in an interesting kind of very thematically appropriate conversation. But does not our life in the factory, in the office, the senselessness of our labors today, automation, mechanization, technologization stand in the way? On the contrary, all the more clearly will the false form of time's eruption, right? That kind of motoricity that, he, that we were talking about earlier, right? Extraction of labor, objectification of the human life wor world, the loss of the commons, right? That's, the, that's this false time, uh, the, the false form of time that Gepser talks about. Will be evident as expressed in motoricity and the scramble for worthless goods and the like, which must be overcome. Our environment, the factories and offices, is our own creation, and we have allowed the formlessness of this void to be imposed on us by the empty mechanisms. It's not just meaning, he's not just meaning machines here, he's meaning the machine itself of our economic system, right? Capitalist realism. This is how I'm reading it. Such an environment will change to the extent that we are able to realize our task. And for this, everyone has the requisite leisure and sense of obligation. I don't know if that's the case anymore, um, but certainly, you know, 
it, it's worth stating. Between the hours of earning a living and bedtime, there are many hours to be used wisely, though not for the superficial gain of becoming cultured or learned, which is where I thought Byung-Chul Han's emphasis on leisure, you know, leisure time, there, there's a kind of an aroma or a smell of that kind of becoming cultured, right? The, the, the bias of uh, uh, the intellectual elitists to have that leisure time. Um, I think that, that we can radicalize that a little bit further in what Gaps are saying here, like, right, that it's not about the superficial gain of just free time. The hours and days are to be spent not only purposefully, but also meaningfully. What is today called free time must not be squandered leisurely, but employed to acquire time freedom. I mean, this is like, this is like a, funny enough, written in like 1949, 1952, it, it folds so well into, into Mark Fisher's commentary on time and stasis and capitalist realism, um, which is why I'm writing about it. I think having a dialogue conceptually with Fisher and Gepser, um, thinking about this sort of, how do we engage in this, this emancipation you know, from this one-sidedness of time? of capitalist realism, of the mental rational world, um, deeply, deeply needs to be held, right? I think there's a lot of possibility here. Um, and then, you know, one other thing I mentioned before, this is just like a reading of, of Gebser uh, quotes. Um, I, I, I like this, it is cryptic, but Gebser talks about um, technology to the earlier question. Um, He's talking about how technology here on these pages, for those who are just listening, um, has a kind of time freedom element to it. There's a motif of the integral world or the aperspectival world in the technology that we're developing. And he particularly mentions computers. Um, he mentions it down here. It's very much like a a kind of a, a media studies comment, right? Radio's capacity to nullify space and time, temporal telescoping of spatial distances by the airplane, accelerators such as the cyclotron, which are able to release atomic events and reactions. All these technological achievements can become liberators if their underlying time components become transparent for us, right? They can be tools for our liberation if their underlying time components become transparent for us. Uh, since it institutes an empty movement, present-day technology is an unmastered time. It is the most impressive example of rational man's failure when faced with his task of resolving the problem of time. Instead of intensifying time, man has quantified it by rational thinking into a cascading motion. I think one science fiction example of this would be um, the recent Westworld season last year, uh, which was you know kind of feeding off of the fears of algorithms becoming all all dominant and even shaping our, our, our personal life story, you know, um, and, and over-determining it, right? So that, that is the kind of rational time that, that we have failed to overcome that Gebser's talking about, continues to, to be present. So I think that's re really interesting to, to explore here. And this is all very untapped stuff. So more of this will be in my book uh, coming out next year, Fragments of an Integral Futurism, really looking at technology, temporics, um, exit strategies from capitalism, reclaiming time uh, through this integral intensification and how this is sort of ways in which the consciousness culture and 
uh, thinkers like Mark Fisher on the left really can kind of synergize with one another. Um, let's see. Yeah. With AI machine learning, we we're able to speed up time in a transformative way if used proper responsibly. I hope so. I hope so. Um, again, I think all of the, the computer oriented tech, digital tech, has the possibility to be used responsibly if our if our consciousness of time, if our cultural attitude about it is sufficiently transformed, you know, if we're seeing it as a way in which we can democratize labor and democratize time and as a tool for that end, then then yes, you know. Um, Marx understood the difficulty and necessity of perceiving conceptualizing machine time. Yeah. And I think, you know, Marx, Marx was, was um, sort of an integral thinker in his own way. Uh, I really appreciated Nshreko Horvach's book, uh, Poetry from the Future, which is a saying from Marx, right? Um, it, it reminded me of Gebser's work in Ever Present Origin and before then. He used to study poetry and, and, and um, through the evolution of poetry and literature. Uh, in in Western Europe, particularly Rilke, but one of the the commentaries that he that he had on the muses and how this new relationship with the past and the muses and kind of looking back for the inspiration was shifting to a kind of um, latency or a kind of futurism where we listen to what is emerging right into the creative process itself rather than the muses. So there's a shift from poetry as a kind of a looking back to poetry as a kind of um, present latency, and he begins to articulate and give examples of, of um, newer poets. So he talks about Novalis, um, talks quite a bit about Holderlin. Um, it reminded me of Marx's commentary about, you know, looking to past revolutions or looking to the past versus listening to the poetry of the future in terms of what, you know, this transformation beyond capitalism really actually needs. So I would say, you know, that, sh that attitude is in there as well with Marx. Um, have you studied Bergson? Yeah, I mean, I've I've done some work with Bergson, not very, not in a deep way. Uh, he's one of the thinkers I really want to dig into in the coming months, as as the book writing uh, ramps up as well. Um, I, I do think through Deleuze, I've studied Bergson. <laughs> I've, I don't know if that's sufficient, really, you know, um, but. I really appreciate Deleuze's take on, on, on his own Berksonism. So there's that at least. And that has factored into my thinking quite a bit. Okay, let's jump to um, Facebook again, see if there's any other comments. Oh yeah, Adam. Yep, Mark Fisher. That's right. Uh, I'm a, a big fan of, of Fisher's work. And um, I think what we really need is is more conversations about, um, particularly his 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 um, last book, which just came out, kind of the collected writings on post capitalist uh, futures, uh, on asset communism. I think the consciousness dimension, like Michael Brooks used to articulate, is just so it's so important. And I know it's 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 kind of framed as like a a way in which imagining a world beyond capitalism, a way in which developing new senses of time and space 
which kind of radicalize us and allow us to do as Gebster's talking about here, like engage the world and go like, okay, this is all a false sense of time, this extractive labor economy, et cetera. We need a new orientation. Anything that can help intensify that, you know, anything that can help um, catalyze that in, 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 with intensity, not quantity, but intensity that Gebster talks about. So I love Fisher's work for that, for that reason. Um, and I also really love Fisher's work because I think he's, he's similar in spirit to Gebser in that you know, Gebser called it cultural phenomenology, but you know, his emphasis was, well, okay, well, how does a culture creatively express its relationship with time and space, you know, through its aesthetics, through its music, through its art, through its, you know, economy, you know, all the way down into economics and et cetera. So that was his focus. Like if we're going to look at cultural evolution, if we're going to look at transformations of, of um, in his context, the West, then let's look at how our cultural phenomenology of time continues to shift. Right. Or if it's stuck in a particular direction. Right. So I think Gebser would have loved because he was mid-century he died in 1972. Uh, I think Gebser would have loved Fisher's work for bringing that question into the forefront. Like, what is our relationship to time? And the synergy between Gebser and, and Fisher here, particularly is the diagnosis with the crisis of modernity and late capitalism, which is, you know, uh, Fisher talks about stasis, right? This kind of canceling of the future. This is the inability to imagine a world beyond capitalism, the capture of capitalist realism on the imagination. Um, has to do and i love how F uh, fisher does that he talks about um what is that sci-fi show called uh the uk show that he talks about um about the time travelers how time is stuck in that one particular moment right his usage of time and commentary on time and in stories and aesthetics brilliant gebster does the same kind of thing back in the 1940s um and i think that kind of practice needs to continue um so yes plus one cultural phenomenology, temporics, and their analysis is again, very similar. Like Gebser talks about how, like there's a twofold element to the, the, the time anxiety that we're living in. One is the failure to imagine a different kind of relationship with the world, time and space, um, a kind of a stasis that captures everything and assimilates everything, uh, kind of a deadness of things. And then on the other hand, that roteness and motoricity, right, of, of, of extractive labor um, and um, a, a kind of a, a runaway time, right? So there's a sense of like, we're not in control of anything and we're going faster than ever before. And that sounds catastrophic, right? But then also everything, we're, we, we're unable to imagine a, a something alternative to this. So it's that kind of freeze and capture and stasis. And then also that mindless motoricity that can only keep going forward. And Gebser talks about this in the 1940s, right? And I know there's others who talk about elements of this. Um, but yes, so there's so much uh, interesting alignments and convergences. Let's see. See if there's any other comments or questions besides studying Bergson. Cool. 
Yeah, Adam's saying, and, and the way in acid communism is in the talk of how psychedelic consciousness experiences uh, experiences force the mind to leave capitalist realist time relations. Yes, exactly. And this is where like, um, like, you know, as Fisher talks about with that, with psychedelic experiences, um, we had a comment earlier from Chris about sand talk. Um, there is, there is a, a kind of, uh, I want to say a spectrum, but there, there is an array of different ways to <laughs> deterritorialize our sense of time and re-territorialize it around a new relationship. Um, and I think psychedelics are one way, very important. And in relation to what uh, Tyson Yunkaporta talks about, uh, in relation to what Gepser talks about in terms of a daily practice to intensify and develop a kind of fluidity of time, in our consciousness. Um, there are many ways to do it and they need to all be like in communication with one another. And that's something like, um, like Michael Brooks talked about quite a bit is like the left needs, needs stuff like that. The left needs exit strategies that give us a way out, right? Of capitalist realism. They allow the mind to imagine something beyond it and it's time. Uh, but also offer a different kind of time or a fluidity of time practices, uh, fluidity of time consciousness. And that's really Gepster's emphasis. And I think that's like what the integral community is interested in. That's what a lot of the like regenerative culture practices that are kind of bringing and folding in indigenous wisdom and indigenous worldviews. Um, I think this whole constellation of different communities of practice needs to be folded in to conversation with the left because they're all allies here. And I like, I really appreciate Fisher's work for leaving a window, literally a window open to that because I know a lot of this stuff can be seen and even Fisher himself, right? Like in his blog, he, he wrote pretty scathing critiques, warranted scathing critiques of, of hippies and uh, the hedonism, et cetera, um, which are warranted. But I think, you know, there there's an allyship here that's possible and potentially really the only direction to really get under everyone's skin, you know, quite literally with psychedelics, I suppose. Are you familiar with um, Peter Moon, Montauk Project? No, I'm, I'm not. Feel free to send me a note about that. Oh, no. Um, occult and ancient technologies of time travel. I, <laughs> I'd love to hear about that, though. Um, the occult is kind of fun. There's interesting... Uh, stuff there. I mean, I, I used to work for uh, Reality Sandwich and, and Evolver. So um, they were kind of an interesting in the in the late in the early 2010s, they were kind of an interesting uh, combination of, of, of burners and, and heads and permaculture enthusiasts and Occupy Wall Street activists and um, they had a very interesting con uh, convergence and, and mixing of like the weird hippie new age um, experimental community living. And then also, you know, part of the kind of wave of activism at the time we even came out with like an Occupy consciousness and Doug Rushkoff is one of the writers in there um, that we did like a David Graeber talk on um, uh, with uh, Charles Eisenstein on sacred economics and debt. So like these are really like, they're all entangled here, you know, in terms of uh, 
these different communities. I think it's good to have, like I've been saying earlier, like it's really good to be grounded in material history, material economics, poly, uh, the, the, the material history of the left uh, particularly is really good to be grounded there because um, you can really kind of go out there with some of the stuff. But uh, yes, they're all they're all kind of entangled for me. Let's see. Oh yeah, and earlier I mentioned that book, A Tale for Time Being. And for anyone who's coming in a little bit later, and we're we're in here at the beginning, I left some links, a couple of things coming up. There's the um, next week, next Tuesday, we're going to be having a talk with Brant Stickley and Barbara Carlson. It's going to be Zoom, open for registration. Uh, it's called the A Perspective Body. We're going to be continuing our conversations about integral consciousness from our various studies, uh, somatics, Chinese medicine, integral philosophy. Um, it should be really fun. It should be really good. It's, again, it's open registration on Zoom, so definitely look for a link for that. Um, you can, of course, connect with me on Patreon. We have Wednesday sessions pretty much every Wednesday, and we have a Discord discussion, usually video, uh, audio only, on Fridays. We try to do that every week, and of course, it's a good way to just kind of stay in touch with me and, and poke my brain about stuff. So definitely feel free to plug in that way. Um, there's the Mutations podcast where this is going after it's already streamed. And um, there's a couple other links there, like the newsletter, which is a good way to stay stay up to date with with my material here. Um, all right, let's quickly take a look through and see if there's any other comments or questions. <laughs> yeah, a, co a couple of last minute ones. Um, all right, one second. Let's just get this one queued up here. I ended up talking about everything I wanted to, uh, globalization and planetization, uh, reflections on peer-to-peer, -peer, Gepser. I didn't talk about decolonization too much, but I think um, we kind of touched on that lightly. And then we definitely talked a little bit about integral futurism. Good, good. But okay, that comment, uh, this is what's so cringy about psychedelic culture. People want to believe things so much. They talk themselves in the pseudo-intellectual fantasies. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like wacky stuff out there. Um, uh, and for instance, like, you know, I, I I really don't know what to think about like Jose Arguiles and, and that kind of stuff. I kind of approach that, you know, like you just approach that like you would like if you were an anthropologist or a religious studies major, you know, like it's really interesting. Why are people interested in, in you know, um, you know romanticization of, of the Mayan calendar and Aztec cosmology? Um, it's an opportunity to kind of root yourself in like, okay, what really is going on here? Let's deconstruct it. But then also like, you know, it's, it's a modern religious movement. There's particular desires that are being addressed by it. And I think it's really good to understand them, but I totally understand that like, it could be really cringy and very often, um, uh, a, a grounded intellectual culture is missing from the new age and from the consciousness culture. Uh, it's, you don't often find it. So it's really good to see it when it's folded in to, again, material politics. That's all I'm going to say. Um, okay. I think that's good. We've got about 90 minutes. Thank you, everybody, for participating with me. And I'll just try to do this next week as well. This is really fun. Um, I'll try to do this more regularly. So if you have any questions, comments, reach out, and I will see you next time. Take care, everybody.